Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It's time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. Updates are based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. So let's get started. The first thing I want to talk about today is an issue that is difficult for a lot of employers, and that is working with a transgender employee. There's a new case out of Illinois State Court, Hobby Lobby Stores versus Somerville, which was decided last week, and it involved an employee who, after a decade of working at Hobby Lobby, began to transition from male to female. The employee disclosed her female gender identity two years after she began the transition and began medical treatment, resulting in female secondary sex characteristics. In 2010, she began to use her female name and appear at work in feminine clothing and makeup. That year, she also obtained a court order legally changing her name, as well as a new state driver's license and social security card, both of which identified her as female. Around the same time, she informed Hobby Lobby of her transition and her intent to use the women's bathroom. Hobby Lobby changed her personnel records and benefits information to reflect her female identity, but it denied her access to the women's restroom. Uh, Hobby Lobby took the position that she needed to produce legal authority requiring her employer to allow her to use the women's restroom. She provided the driver's license, social security card, and the court order changing her name, as well as some documentation from medical providers, but Hobby Lobby still refused to allow her to use the women's bathroom and actually ordered employees to report her if she tried to. Now, in uh, February of 2011, the employee received a written warning for entering the women's bathroom at the store. Uh, The employer had told her at that time that she had to undergo surgery first and produce a birth certificate reflecting her sex as female. In 2013, the employer installed a unisex bathroom at the store, but it still did not allow the employee to use the women's bathroom. Now, the matter eventually ended up in court, and one thing that the court focused on very closely is the language of the Illinois Human Rights Act. And the act states that unlawful discrimination includes discrimination against a person because of his or her actual or perceived sex or sexual orientation, as those terms are defined in this section. In turn, sex is defined as the status of being male or female, and sexual orientation encompasses gender-related identity, whether or not traditionally associated with the person's designated sex at birth. Hobby Lobby had argued that it limited access to its bathrooms based on sex rather than gender identity. It argued that sex referred to reproductive organs and structures, and that the employee who had not been surgically treated is of the male sex. However, Hobby Lobby's definition of sex is not how it's defined in the Act, and the court therefore rejected it, because the Act defines sex as the status of being male or female, which is a broad phrasing that does not draw distinctions based on birth certificates or genetic information or so forth. So what does this mean for employers? 
Well, I think initially it means that employers who are dealing with this kind of a situation in the workplace obviously need to tread very carefully. I would say the takeaway from this case also is that employers need to start with looking at the applicable statutes in their jurisdiction to determine how they're going to approach these kinds of situations and, and how they're going to craft a strategy. Uh, the other thing I would point out about this case that I think is important is that Hobby Lobby did offer this employee a unisex bathroom, and that was really not acceptable. And it wasn't acceptable to the employee, and obviously it wasn't acceptable to the court either. And I know a lot of employers continue to try to use that as a fallback position in dealing with transgender employees, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that it is not necessarily a solution to these issues and, uh, and employers may have to work a little harder and, uh, and consider things a little more deeply than simply offering something like that. Interestingly enough, there is a second recent case out of Illinois, a federal case this time, uh, also involving a transgender employee. And this one involved a campaign worker. The case is Todd v. JB for governor, uh, which was also decided uh, in August. Uh, in the case involved an employee who joined a gubernatorial campaign as a field organizer. Now, in that position, she was involved in the campaign's voter outreach strategy, and field organizers supported the campaign by identifying voters who supported the candidate and ensuring they would turn out on Election Day. She was also required to recruit and retain volunteers involved in voter outreach efforts and worked on the campaign through the primary election in March. After the primary, the employee and 30 other employees were all laid off. Now, the purpose of the layoff, according to the campaign, was to allow the campaign to operate more leanly in the period after the primary until later when the campaign's general election efforts would begin. Now, in determining which employees would be included in the layoff, the campaign evaluated the field organizer's quantitative and qualitative work performance. Now, while the employee in this case argued that she was one of the strongest field organizers in the entire campaign, the campaign disputed this characterization. In fact, the campaign pointed to four incidents that were cited in connection with the decision to include the employee in the layoff. Uh, first, the employee had displayed a cartoon poster in her work area that was found to be offensive. Um, and when it was pointed out to her, she removed it. And second, the uh, employee had called a volunteer a name that was inappropriate, which the employee disputed. The third incident was that she had arrived late to an assigned uh, assigned event. And then the, finally, on a different day, um, she had had a disagreement regarding canvassing with another volunteer. And so the campaign had looked at these issues, which they considered to be inappropriate and unprofessional, and they had gone toward the uh, decision to uh, select the employee for the layoff. Now, at some point after the layoff, the employee learned that a former supervisor had made some transphobic comments about her, uh, but she did not know that during the time she was employed. Now, the argument that the employee made here was that the the supervisor who had made the transphobic comments had tainted the judgment of the others who were involved in the decision to include this employee in the layoff. And this is called the cat's paw theory, meaning that the decision makers themselves weren't all biased against the employee, but they were influenced, allegedly anyway, by someone who was. Regardless, the court ultimately rejected the employee's claims and found in favor of the 
gubernatorial campaign. And the reason was there just was no evidence of discriminatory animus on the part of the campaign or the supervisor. Uh, really, for the most part, the incidents that led to the decision to include the employee in the layoff, they weren't really disputed. They were characterized differently by the employer and the employee, but there wasn't a lot of factual dispute over whether or not they happened. Uh, and in some, the court held that the evidence showed only that the employee disagreed with the employer's assessment of the import of the incidents, not that the supervisor had a discriminatory motive in reporting them, or that the supervisor had mischaracterized them or distorted them based on any kind of bias. And as a result, the court held in favor of the employer in this case. And I think the lesson here is quite simple. Uh, you know, this, this describes a lot of cases in a lot of uh, discrimination contexts where the, the heart of the dispute is actually that the employer and the employee simply disagree on the seriousness and character of certain incidents. It happens all the time. And in most cases, uh, employers, absent some other evidence, are not at huge risk in these types of scenarios. Next, I want to look at a couple of cases involving religion. The first one is Rivas versus Caesar Enterprise Services, uh, which involved a Caesar's Palace guest room attendant who was a practicing seven-day Adventist. Now, this employee, when she was first hired, was a guest room attendant, and she worked on a temporary basis Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Several months later, she was changed to what's called a steady extra guest room attendant. Now, under the collective bargaining agreement, when a gap arises in scheduling, the employer must contact steady extras to fill in according to a rotation. If a steady extra declines an offered shift, the next steady extra in the rotation is contacted until the shift is filled. Refusing more than 25% of shifts offered in a 60-day period can result in termination. Now, this particular employee had told her supervisor that she could not work on Saturdays, which was the Sabbath day for her religion, and she also gave the supervisor a note from her pastor. Now, she had specifically requested a religious accommodation that she be skipped over or have her scheduled days off on Saturday. Now, not surprisingly, since there was a lawsuit, uh, she had rejected more than uh, 25% of the shifts that were offered to her on Saturdays. Uh, and as a result, she was suspended and ultimately terminated for that, for violating that rule. Now, the thing I want to focus on here really is the employer's argument. The employer pointed out to the court that the employee had worked on the Sabbath on more than one occasion. And the argument went that if she was inconsistently applying her beliefs and she was willing to prioritize making money over observing the Sabbath, then, the employer argued, her beliefs weren't sincere. The court rejected this argument and noted that there was evidence showing that she was an active church member who tried to apply her church's teachings in her life. And further, she had testified she worked some Sabbath shifts either because she was specifically asked to or she felt it was necessary to make ends meet. The court noted that perfection is not required to indicate the sincerity of belief, and as a result, she prevailed on that claim. And the only thing I really want to point out about this is I've handled a lot of religious discrimination claims over the years, and one thing I can say with pretty good certainty is arguing that a person's religious beliefs are not sincere is almost never going to be a winner with the court. Um, I've seen a lot of cases, and, and what courts usually do is they focus more on the importance of the um, practice or belief to the employee 
and not so much whether or not it adheres to any particular set of religious rules or dogmas. So it's just not usually a good argument. Now let's look at another case involving religion, Starkey versus Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Indianapolis, which was decided earlier this month. Now, the employee in this case began working for a Catholic high school in the 70s, and in her 40 years of employment, she had held a number of different positions. For the last 12 years of her employment, she was a guidance counselor, uh, and actually her title was co-director of guidance. Now, she had a contract with the school, and pursuant to her contract, she agreed that she would be in default if she breached any duty including relationships that are contrary to a valid marriage as seen through the eyes of the Catholic Church, which defines marriage as only between a man and a woman. Now, the school learned that she was in a same-sex marriage and refused to renew her employment contract on the grounds that her marriage violated Catholic teachings. She sued the school and the Archdiocese of Indianapolis alleging discrimination and retaliation under Title VII. Now, the school argued that the employee was a minister, and as a result, her claims were barred by the First Amendment's ministerial exception, which the court noted bars all claims of discrimination under Title VII, including discrimination based on sexual orientation. The court also noted that the ministerial exception is not limited to ordained ministers and has been applied to other employees like an organist, a press secretary, and a school principal. Now, in this case, the court found that the ministerial exception covered the employee's role as co-director of guidance. There was religious instruction and formation as part of the school's philosophy and mission, and she was required by her employment documents to perform a variety of religious duties and help carry out the school's mission. Also, pursuant to the school's guidance counselor ministry description, she was a minister of faith charged with fostering the spiritual growth of her students. Now, for her part, the employee claimed that her secular duties, such as scheduling classes, helping with college applications, and providing college test preparation and other things, were dominant, and that she never prayed with her students as part of her regular duties. And she also claimed that her duties at the school were nearly identical to the duties that she had as a guidance counselor at a public school, which was a job she got after leaving the Catholic school. The court rejected this argument and noted that this, uh, this argument ignored the intended role that the Catholic school had for the position of a guidance counselor. And it also found sufficient evidence that she had performed many functions that would not have been required of a guidance counselor at a secular school. So what's the takeaway for employers? Well, at least as far as religious organizations and schools go, I think it's safe to say that the courts are reading the ministerial exception very broadly these days. In most cases, if there's a good argument that the employee has some kind of a religious role in the organization, there's a pretty good chance that the court is at least going to seriously consider applying the ministerial exception. The last thing I want to raise is a new NLRB complaint issued against Home Depot. The Minneapolis NLRB office issued a complaint against Home Depot this month, alleging that the chain discriminated against an employee in a Minneapolis store for raising issues of racial harassment with coworkers and managers and displaying a Black Lives Matter slogan on his apron. The complaint notes that the company had a lawful dress code policy, which barred employees from wearing things with political slogans on them, but it was applied uh, unevenly 
and that led to the complaint. Now, I've seen this sort of scenario before, and there's not a lot of information in the complaint to figure out exactly what happened here, but what usually happens in these kinds of situations is employers have a policy, but they make exceptions to it for certain things. For instance, a lot of employers will allow employees to wear a rainbow pin especially during Pride Month. When that happens, they open the door to these kinds of claims because they're selectively enforcing their rules against wearing things that have a political message. And in the instance of something like Black Lives Matter, there's a very close tie to the protected characteristic of race. So the lesson to be learned here is that if employers want to have a dress code that prohibits any kind of messaging on employees' uniforms, they need to enforce it uniformly in all instances and not make exceptions or they will face these kinds of complaints in the future. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional 